So is it cancer or not cancer? Is that the debate today? I think so. Yeah. I mean, we've had a lot of debates about low-risk cancer. Yeah, prostate cancer. But, uh, you know, it it's it's like it says on the tin. People tell us, you know, we've taken a biopsy, it's cancer. So it's it should be straightforward. I don't know why we even have to dedicate an entire podcast and acres of reading in journals recently <laughs> to, is it cancer or is it not cancer? It's, it's good writing, though. It is good writing and it's a very good clinical discussion because of the whole context of this type of cancer. But that's what we're going to try and uh, figure out today, folks, is Gleason 6, or as we call it nowadays, grade group 1 prostate cancer, cancer at all. Or maybe a different way of looking at it is, well, should we call it cancer, even if some people say, yes, actually, technically, this is cancer, but can we can we please actually drop the word cancer? And I think that's a fantastic uh, topic to have on GUCast today, Renee, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. So it's been triggered by some fantastic um, uh, papers recently, especially a couple of great uh, comments mm-hmm. in European Urology, our big flagship journal, of course, running off the back of really... A decade long, I'm sure, um, a con- conversation about whether this type of prostate cancer should actually be called prostate cancer. And the background, of course, is because there is still an issue with overtreatment of low risk, low grade prostate cancer. And although active surveillance is widely utilized in some countries, it's very variable in other countries. Um, and therefore, there's still a cohort of men who are being overtreated because they've been diagnosed with this um, uh, grade group one Gleason 6 prostate cancer. And what we want to do is invite on a couple of the great um, voices who've been involved in this uh, discussion recently. Uh, and so it's a great pleasure to welcome on uh, friends of the podcast, uh, Matt Cooperberg from UCSF in California. Matt, welcome back to GUCast. Hey, Matt. Good to see you both. Uh, and another friend of the podcast, uh, Dr. Eva Komparat, um, pathologist, a very uh, well-regarded re- uh, GU pathologist uh, from Vienna. Eva, welcome back to GUCast. Thank you. Welcome. And I hope a few people are seeing this on YouTube, Eva, because we love that backdrop that you've got there. You've come prepared for battle. <laughs> she sure has. And uh, new to the podcast, I don't think yeah, we've had uh, uh, Dr. Scott Egener, urologist from Chicago uh, on GUCast before. Scott, welcome. Great to be here. Looking forward to it. Great. Well, look, what, what a great trio to have on to discuss this topic. Yeah, yeah. really good. And, and off the back of some fantastic papers some some rebuttals and some point-counterpoint debates, and um, yeah, I think we're going to have a great discussion today. Yeah, and I think it's great to have Scott on in particular because yeah. um, he really has been a, a name that I always associate with you know, pushing home this argument to say, can't we just stop doing it? And in the past couple of years, especially, <coughs> Scott, you've written some some great pieces, um, that big piece in the JCO earlier this year, and this piece in European Urology most recently with Matt uh, and Andrew Vickers, um, and a patient of yours, Howard Walinski, has also been involved, I think, in some of these oh, publications. Yes. So perhaps we'll start with you to say, you know, wh- wh- what is all this about, and why do you feel so passionately about it? Wh- what is the problem? Wh- wh- what are you trying to address here? And uh, uh, before we get on to Eva's context, uh, Eva response to you know why there's an issue with just dropping the term cancer yeah first of all thanks for broaching the topic and having us on the really brief answer to your question is i am absolutely convinced based on loads of data that public health would be better if we did not call it cancer and for that reason i and many others think it's an important conversation that we should have within the prostate cancer community It's unassailable truth that grade group one is literally incapable of causing symptoms spreading to other parts of the body. And I would argue there's not a man in history who's ever died from it or had severe local symptoms. 
And we should acknowledge that over the last decade or so, all the new tools that we have available, we're trying not to diagnose men with grade group one. One of the great attributes of MRI is we don't see it and don't find it as much. All of our screening biomarkers, even some of the genomic tests. So we're pushing the argument out there to just have the conversation. It's a healthy, important conversation for all the prostate cancer community uh, to have. And do you think it's been met with um, some reciprocal um, acceptance or enthusiasm from, say, the urology community, Matt, to, to say that, okay, uh, look, um, we recognize that we've gone a f quite a distance, uh, led by people like yourself, promoting active surveillance. And as Scott says, the tools have improved. Uh, for example, in this country, Renew, widespread use of MRI has yeah. definitely led to less diagnosis of low-grade prostate cancer because we tend not to biopsy many of those men nowadays um but do you think that this may be the final thing that pushes uh, the the over treatment issue away uh, if we finally uh, can actually stop calling this cancer in the first place because no one's going to do a radical prostatectomy or radiation or focal therapy god forbid um for for something that's not called cancer it, it could be i think we have some hope that it is and you know we have to recognize this this conversation has actually been going on more than 10 years you know 2009 Laura Esserman and Ian Thompson had a great editorial in JAMA talking about the parallels between prostate cancer and breast cancer in this regard, you know, really making the point that a, a large proportion of both prostate and breast lesions have basically no clinical capacity for metastasis, and we should be calling them something else. In uh, 2012, there was a great Lancet review from uh, the group in London, from Hatch, um, Ahmet and uh, Mark Emberton, uh, really emphasizing that there are no molecular hallmarks of cancer identifiable in grade group three. And a lot more work has gone down in, in that line of research since. Um, it does feel, though, this time that there's a little bit more momentum. This conversation has not sort of died with the publication. It's ongoing. And, you know, I, I think there's some sense that we're on the right side of history here. And eventually there's going to be a change. Um, Scott has some great data. You may want to talk about this, Scott, your survey uh, of urology and, and pathology, but it, you know, that, that gave me some hope that we might actually have some, uh, an audience for the message this time around. Yeah, yeah just very... Sorry, Scott. Just very brief, we have survey data from 1,300 people around the world from all different specialties, and we were surprised to see about half total were interested in either you know, considering a name change and didn't categorically refuse it, I think uh, Eva's input is extraordinarily important because uh, one of the two main factors of people who are most opposed to it were the pathologists and older clinicians. And I'm an old pathologist. <laughs> <That comes double. laughs> so Eva, let, let's go to you because, yeah, we've had this, there's momentum building now. There is some resistance and even Matt's comments, you know, some urologists will... Uh, nitpick, I would say a little bit at that, saying, oh, well, what about this molecular evidence? Does this paper from ages ago, maybe one tiny bit of grease and six metastasize? I'm with you on it, Matt. I totally am. And I think the overwhelming momentum is that we don't think Gleason 6 can metastasize, generally speaking. And that it would be okay not to call it Gleason 6 or grade group 1, and we'll find it eventually if it does become grade group 2 or 3. Um, but the momentum's building, and I love this piece in European Urology last month um, uh, from your, the, both of you and Andrew Vickers, and you, 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 you titled this Remove 
removing the designation of cancer from grade group one disease will do more good than harm. Um, and Renu, there were, there, were, there were six bullet points, weren't yeah. there? And we're, we're just going to read out these six points because I think it summarizes the clinical argument before we go to Eva um, about why it, it's a good thing to do this. Now, we, we know there's reasons why it's not so simple, but you know, let's run through those six reasons. Yeah, and I mean, I think the main thing for most urologists is the ripple effect that the term cancer has. And I think that's what, that's what these points sort of really highlight. So number one is the word cancer has a very specific and highly adverse emotional resonance which is true amongst a lot of our patients yeah most and, of our and, patients. and your patient i mean many but your patient howard walinski writes very eloquently about that mm-hmm. um we'll put some links to his stuff scott as well that he when he was diagnosed with grade group one prostate cancer years ago it was extremely impactful on him emotionally yeah. i mean once you say to a patient you have prostate cancer they stop listening even though the rest of your sentences mm-hmm. but this is not you know this is nothing to worry about and we don't have to do anything mm-hmm. about it um, so that's 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 part of that. Um, number two is overtreatment of low grade prostate cancer remains rife, and this particular problem in the US, isn't it, Matt? It is. Uh, we had some data at AOA this year from the Aqua Registry. We're still about forty percent treatment for low risk. Um, interestingly, some further analysis since that presentation, it's a slightly bigger problem in areas with more urology competition. Um, you know, and San Francisco, we're sort of the only show in the city at UCSF from the academic standpoint. Um, so it's easier to keep them on surveillance here. Um, in New York, as a counterexample, you know, they get good advice for surveillance at one center. You know, right down the street, there's another person doing a thousand prostatectomies a year who is eager to take out that prostate, um, you know, or radiate it or what have you. There's, you know, where there's more competition for the patients, we see a greater problem. And there's just huge variation. You know, the the, the yeah. one liner, you know, your likelihood of getting surveillance for low-risk disease ranges from 0% to 100%, depending on which urologist you happen to see with your diagnosis, which is which is a significant and very persistent problem. Yeah. Okay, so that, that, now, Eva, we're going to come to you. What we're doing is just keeping the momentum going. Uh, uh, yeah. But th- these six points really outline nicely the, the clinical perspective, the clinical argument. And then let's come to, uh, to you. But uh, Yeah, I mean, point three um, just highlights what we've been talking about. The word cancer causes over-treatment. So it's very hard for, you know, for men to offer active surveillance when you've called it cancer. Um, yep. Point four, treatment criteria remains porous, raising the risk of over-treatment. Yep, that's Same true. Sort of thing. Um, a diagnosis of cancer has unavoidable social implications and, and a few things have been identified here. So effects on relationships, employment, insurance. Um, we recently ca- uh, saw a patient in MDT who was, who was denied giving a, a kidney to his son for a transplant because he had yeah. Gleason grade group one prostate cancer. Yeah, this is still a problem. Um, so that was something that we... Crazy. Crazy. Uh, avoidance of the term cancer does not obviate treatment or monitoring. Which is, which is true. So there you go. And, and it was really nicely elucidated on top of many other things. Um, uh, but uh, in the same issue, I think it is, we have uh, uh, Eva and colleagues um, uh, from uh, the, the, who have a very eminent group of editors involved in the WHO classification. And they, they argue the rationale for retaining uh, a cancer label. So Eva, yeah, come on. Uh, surely it's easy. Uh, yeah, Eva's yeah. sitting there smiling. <laughs> yeah. She's like, well, we don't call Gleason score one prostate cancer anymore. We don't call two prostate cancer anymore. Now I don't want to call three I prostate know, cancer. And she's going to make us feel stupid. I get that <laughs> sense. But can you please just uh, outline the counter argument? And then you're very involved in clinical matters, so I'm sure you have views on these good clinical arguments. But please give us the, the kind of maybe pure uh, pathology take on why we can't do this. Eva might have frozen. No, no. Who froze Eva? Comment first. 
Oh, no. Eva. Somebody is sabotaging it's Eva's it's Zoom link. I think Matt has super sabotaged her. Harvey. Oh, we've lost Excellent. Eva. Okay, Did, that, does that mean that you uh, wanted to swim? Well, is that the, well, thank you very much for joining us on this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've figured it out. We're no longer cancelled. We've clearly had <laughs> a we can all spend much time. We've had a consensus. Uh, shall we be having a retraction on this um, argument? <laughs> yeah, we, um, I'm, I'm sure she'll rejoin us. Hopefully. QED. Yeah, because of goodness me, we had a fantastic, uh, you know, outline from her before we went live on this uh, recording about the rationale for this, and it was very interesting listening to her, Scott, wasn't it? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, actually, you know, your paper um, summarizes her paper in six points as well, which is yeah. fantastic. And <laughs> I love yeah. point three. There's this overtreatment is an easily solvable problem. It clearly is not. Yeah, because we've been trying that. I mean, you think it's an easily solvable problem, but, but it's the variations yeah. always going to be there, isn't it? And I think once the label is there, um, as you say, you may be in one institution uh, where you've been told, look, this is, and Scott often tweets about the language he uses, actually, mm. this re really reassuring language. Um, and then the, the person walks out the door and then his loved one or his buddy says, what, they're not going to treat you? I, can, you can, can you hear me again? Oh, we've got yes. Eva back. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Thank you, Eva. Back over to you. So at the very moment. Oh. No, no. Oh, sorry, Eva. You're just breaking up. It's not a good connection. <laughs> Such a shame. And she's turned off her video, but we're still struggling, aren't we? Yeah. Apologies, mm -hmm. listeners and viewers. Uh, hopefully. We will get Eva back with us. Okay. Uh, sorry, Eva. Uh, we still are struggling. We really, oh, she's gone again. Not to worry. Hopefully, we'll get her back. But um, uh, yeah. So you know, if the patient has been told and reassured by a very good clinician, but then they chat to their buddy or their loved one, and they what they're not going to treat your cancer. My my my. Yeah. Did you not remember? Jimmy died of prostate cancer last year, and then if you go for another opinion, you'll find someone who's going to offer you your treatment. Isn't yeah. isn't that yeah. part of the issue? Um, that, that yeah. is that part of the the reason why you see it in areas with more competition, Matt? Is is that part of the reason why uh, we need to sort of really consider the the harm of the cancer label? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I, I hope she does get back on because uh, Eva did have a very eloquent argument you know, before we started recording about the, you know, the pathologic characteristics of what we are trying to delabel as cancer. I mean, there's no question it loses its basal cell membrane. No question it invades stroma. You know, to a pathologist, it has a lot of the characteristics locally of carcinoma. Um, but I think, you know, I, look, I was an English major as an undergrad, and with that hat on, you know, the term cancer predates modern pathology by millennia. It literally goes to the time of Hippocrates. And that resonance with the public, I, I think, is is not going away anytime soon. You know, the word has implications and has a certain connotation um, that has nothing to do with the way it looks under the microscope. And I think, you know, these days we're understanding more and more about these different lesions at the molecular level and the clinical level that goes beyond the histologic appearance. So, you know, in terms of what we should be calling cancer, this is a debate that goes beyond prostate. Like I said before, it's been raised in breast cancer, in the thyroid world. Um, there are certain lesions that have been declassified and part of the current conversation, I think it's through conversations Scott has had with, uh, with some of the pathologists involved in the thyroid declassification argument. Um, so, 
you know, what we call cancer, I think we really need to think about what that word means and how we define it. Um, and, you know, something that, that looks like a duck, but doesn't necessarily quack or walk or talk like one, I'm not sure that we should call, in fact, a duck. Um, can you hear me now? Yes. yes. Much better. Take your opportunity, Eva. Okay. I hope I can remain with you. So briefly, um, I think this is a problem of, of conversation with the patient first, because in Europe, really, everybody, if you suggest Gleason grade group one, uh, they accept active surveillance. This is not a major issue, most of them. Um, second, for us, of course, I mean, I agree that we have morphologic changes, molecular changes we do not see under the microscope, of course not. But I mean, the diagnosis is still made with a microscope and our criteria for cancer are loss of basal cells. And we have in Gleason grade three, loss of basal cells, even in Gleason grade two, we have loss of basal cells. So both are, are cancers. And um, I mean, even if we agree that this is not a very aggressive cancer, it is nevertheless, from a morphologic point of view, it is cancer. And you have these kind of glands, which are sometimes not very regular. It can be extremely exhaustive as a tumor. You might have more than half of the gland filled out with this cancer. You have, according to several studies, between 0, 0,3 to 6% of T3A tumors, which means extraprostatic extension, even if it's only 3. And for me, it's a big issue is the history with the biopsy, because as long as you just have a biopsy, you just have a part of the sample, do not have the whole sample. And of course, we can treat everybody with Gleason grade uh, 6, uh, score 6, sorry, say, well, now we have the whole sample, and it is 6, and nobody will die. This is wonderful. But as long as you're based on biopsies, uh, you cannot say that this is just six. Therefore, active surveillance is something which is very good. And as soon as we have an increased Gleason score on the next biopsy, it's very good to go towards uh, another treatment or more aggressive treatment or whatever. Afterwards, we can discuss about the different uh, active surveillance uh, issues and samples. But um, as Jonathan Epstein said, also, would you call, for example, a BRCA mutated person with Gleason uh, score six uh, not cancer? I mean, I, I would. Yeah, I know you would. But <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> or a person, I don't know, who has a huge MRI lesion and it's just, okay, it's just six. Are you sure there's nothing else in there? Uh, I mean, I, I would not be so sure, you know. I'm a pathologist. I just believe what I see on, on my slides under the microscope. So I would be extremely careful. Uh, and I mean, you have to start somewhere with the cancer. You, you know, we don't talk about Gleason grade two anymore. So, well, but three is really cancer. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry, you have the changes, you have the molecular changes, you have the morphologic changes, and um, and I really think we, we should remain and call this cancer. Afterwards, it's up to you clinicians to say, well, this is a cancer, but it's not a very, very big issue, but it's more a, a problem of explanation to the patients, in my opinion, especially to, to the Americans. But, I mean, the French people have been very reluctant to active surveillance too, and in the end, we got there. So... Yeah. So I think we all accept that, and I know Scott accepts that. So, and this is almost like the the classic um, uh, Eva telling us, "Well, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not to your own facts." And here we go. This is actually cancer, and it's up to you, folk, the clinical community, to you know uh, create a, a a way of describing this entity such that it doesn't get treated like a cancer. But we're not actually changing the facts that it is a cancer. What do you think? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, we we have comparisons within urology within GU oncology as well. You you know, there are those um, pun lumps or uh, urethelial neoplasia of no low malignant potential that we, we no longer call bladder cancer. 
Um, there are, you know, tumours in the kidney that are benign that we don't call cancer, such as oncocytoma, which also, like you've mentioned in the past, um, Eva, do have the histological characteristics of invading stroma like like Gleason 6 prostate yeah. cancer. So what makes them yeah, different? The the destroyed, but well, the pundulums, you know, the pundulums, if you have a resection of a pundulum, you have the whole pundulum. So you have the sample, you do not have just a biopsy. This is a very big difference between a prostate biopsy, where you just have a very, very small amount of the prostate gland, and the pundulum, where you have the whole tumor under the microscope. So you cannot really compare that. Um, well, normally, always, they always cited these tumors, uh, like the basal cell carcinoma of the skin and so on, and the follicular from, from the thyroid, uh, which do not metastasize. But for me, cancer does not mean that it's really something which has to metastasize at 100%, because there are very many small cancers which do not metastasize. And luckily, they're small, and they're low-grade, and we can treat them, and we can heal the patients. So I think this is something also which should be kept in mind, that, of course, cancers sometimes do not spread, and sometimes they're very small, and they're low-grade, and we can heal them, and people are very happy about that. So Scott, so, uh, you, you, this is not a new um, new information. You're very, very used to this uh, argument back from the pathologists. And so, what what is the solution? Are you going to give up on the idea that we are going to be able to drop the term cancer? Because I know one of your other focus is trying to create a syndrome or a name that we can more strongly attach to the diagnosis that might help mitigate it. That almost pushes the cancer thing deep down into the the, the, the subtext so far down. Um, or do you, have you do you still feel that the momentum will be such that we can get the get somehow the cancer label drop because I, I i personally feel we're going to struggle with that um, even with re- really really clinically ex- uh, astute people like many of these gu pathologists like eva are they'll say yeah yeah but it's still cancer it's not a pond lump it's not a, an oncocytoma it's cancer yeah i'm hopeful and confident and and admittedly biased that we'll get there because i think it's the right thing to do but what what eva said is absolutely correct in 2022 by current histologic criteria it meets the definition of cancer but that is a histologic and subsequently a social construct of where we draw the line of what we call cancer or not and um it has massive implications for public health and not in a good way And if you just take a step back on a macro level and look at any dictionary definition of benign versus malignant, basically benign versus cancer, you know, cancer is something that can, you know, replicate endlessly, spread, cause pain, cause death. Gleason 6 does not meet that definition. You know, genetically, molecularly, there are precancerous lesions that share characteristics with grade group one, grade group two, grade group three. We don't call those cancer. There's a lot of men walking around with grade group two or higher. We screen them, they've had a previously negative biopsy, they may have grade group one. And I guess that, you know, there's so many different elements that I could, you know, push the conversation. But I was at a conference recently and asked a large room of people mostly men, but also women. And I said, if you have a prostate or you love someone that has a prostate, raise your hand if you'd want to know right now whether you have grade group one in your prostate. Not a single person raised their hand. And we know for for men over the age of 50, roughly 30 to 50% of them are walking around with prostate cancer. And anyone who knows anything about clinical prostate cancer probably doesn't want to know about it. And I think that's the key, isn't it? Most We're people doing... don't want to know about their cancer. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
But oh, I mean, that, I mean, that, is, that is actually one of the biggest points because we are doing so much to try and not know about yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got my hand up, uh, you know, the 51-year-old yeah. here. Uh, you know, who's we don't want to know that. I mean, fully don't intend dying of prostate cancer, touch wood, but I, I have no interest in knowing whether I've got grey group 1 prostate cancer. Absolutely, and, and we're even trying to normal. stop patients from yeah. getting to the point of a biopsy if they don't have, uh, you know, anything more than grey group yeah. 1 in their prostate. So this... This would really solve a lot of those problems. Because Eva, they only we only think they want to know about it if we worry them enough to think you need to know about yeah. it. But if we if we I don't know pivot away from that mat and say you don't need to know about this, and that's part of the beauty of using MR uh, up front is uh, precision showed how much you drop the the yeah. grade group one diagnosis rate uh, from like twenty seven percent down to nine percent. We don't need to find those twenty percent or probably nearly any of them really. So this is that's uh, I, exactly I the point. Like, no, Sorry. Sorry. Go ahead, Eva. No, it's just, I mean, I would be really, for example, I have 12 biopsies, and let's say there are two biopsies with one millimeter, Gleason grade uh, three plus three, wonderful. And of course, this is ideal patient for active surveillance. But if I have a patient, let's say, and I see patients like this, with 10 biopsies out of 12, um, and they have huge Gleason uh, score or six on their biopsies and on 10 biopsies, I would be a little bit more worried whether there isn't something hiding right behind. And um, and of course, I would do at the beginning probably something and I'm not I'm just a pathologist, but uh, in the cases, I'm pretty sure that there's something behind from a morphological or biological view, which is much more dangerous. And and it's the same Gleason 3 plus 3, so uh, I think it's, you, you, you cannot stop calling it cancer just because it, it's small, because it's, uh, it doesn't spread and so on and so on. I, I think it's really the wrong way. You know, and you a- will lose patients in active surveillance because they will say, well, uh, you know, guys, I don't have really cancer, so I don't care about it. And he will go to his garden, I don't know, in the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> And never come back. It's a, that's a reasonable thought, but I I don't think I I don't think that would happen if. Look, there, it, I, I, it's I a really important point. It. Yeah, this is Go a really ahead. important point because nobody nobody is suggesting that we call this normal. And and frankly, I think most of us that are on the pro side of this would say active surveillance should look exactly the same with the change in nomenclature as it does today. It should be tailored based on the specific criteria. We need to follow somebody a lot closely, a lot more closely who's got yeah. 10 cores of 3-3 than somebody who's got two cores of 3-3, but they need to be followed. Conversely, it is t- perfectly reasonable to do a mastectomy on a woman with extensive DCIS, even though that's not a cancer. It's perfectly acceptable to do mastectomy bilateral mastectomy on women with no cancer, just based on genetics. So there are plenty of specific instances where, you know, proactive radical therapy would be appropriate for something less than cancer, but the bar should be much higher to justify that sort of treatment than it is today. And I want to, you know, I want to step back to the, the conversation, even one more level at the public health level, which is, you know, I, I fully admit that the number of men we might lose if we do this because they don't surveil, because they don't take it seriously, is probably above zero. But yeah. it's not much above zero. And in the meantime, you know, you think about the tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of men around the world who die every year because they don't even get a PSA screening test because the primary care doc doesn't offer it to them because they are still so concerned about overtreatment and overdiagnosis in the urology community. That to me is is the the 
one of the most powerful arguments here. You know, in the U.S., we've gone from this D recommendation of don't screen anybody ever in 2012 to now a C, based in large part on rising rates of active surveillance. We now have this C recommendation, meaning, well, you can talk about PSA screening, you should have shared decision making, but we still don't really recommend it. You know, if re- and the reality is only about 30% of men in their 50s get PSA tested in the U.S. And if we want to convince our colleagues in primary care to take us seriously, that we will not overdiagnose or overtreat this disease, you know, this change would shift the balance of benefits to harms so so strongly in favor of screening. My expectation is we would find thousands more aggressive cancers that really need treatment more than making up for by by orders of hundreds or thousands, making up for for whatever small numbers we, we may lose, if any through less intensive surveillance. So the, you know, this public health argument to me really is, is you know, the one that keeps us going here, I think. But may I just ask you a question because you talked about yes. BRCA mutated women who have mastectomies. So yes. you have a BRCA mutated man, you know, mm-hmm. he has a risk for prostate cancer. He doesn't have mm-hmm. a prostate cancer. Will you take his prostate out? <laughs> I would not, but I have colleagues around the world. So the, the Martini Clinic in Germany has done at least a half a dozen of these. I believe in Canada, there's a small series of these. Um, to me, you know, what we have the breast cancer does not have as a field is the PSA test. And you show me a guy with a BRCA mutation and a PSA of 0.4, and I'm going to say you're great. We need to keep a close eye on this, but we don't need to do anything right now. You know, you show me a guy at 48 with a BRCA mutation and a PSA of 1.4, we are definitely going down the path of imaging, potentially secondary biomarkers, potentially biopsy. And, you know, that is somebody who I would think about treatment because remember with surveillance, the question is not, is not treat yes or no forever. It's do we need to treat now versus can we wait? And the guy with a BRCA mutation and, and a Gleason 3.3 diagnosis, you know, that man needs treatment at some point. Does it have to be today? Not necessarily. And you know, I think Eva brings up a really, yeah. a really good point. And I think Um, most thoughtful urologists around the world think about it this way. You take every piece of information you have available on a man and you try to estimate the likelihood that they have pattern four or grade group two or higher in their prostate. And that's in the screening setting. What's their PSA? What's their DRE? What's their family history? What's their germline status? And even in the surveillance setting. I mean, we, we used to do this very rigorous annual biopsy for surveillance. We now know, and I'm sure the four clinicians on the call, when you're doing surveillance, there's guys I keep a close eye on, and there's guys I really dial it back. And it's all about what is their risk of having pattern four or higher. And we've got a dozen different things that go into that stew to estimate their likelihood of having kind of real consequential disease. And it's the same for the BRCA2 one, Eva, and yeah, the super high volume, lead the MR lesion, etc. We're not going to, you know, we're going to follow those patients. If we do a biopsy and it's a thing that it used to be called Gleason 6 in the old days, but now it's not, it's, it's a different thingy, it's not cancer, we are not going to just discharge the patient, you know, right? So as, as Scott says, we have a stew where we're going to follow them. But for every one of them, like there's 20 or 30 men with one core of grade group 6, and it's a massive impact on their lives. Like they are harmed by this and if you listen to patients as, as i've mentioned like howard walinski they write very eloquently about how they have been harmed by this financial toxicity stress marriage all sorts of things by this completely unnecessary label that gets attached to them so i think there are, there will be some trust that we we're not going to 
disadvantage the other extreme of patients who perhaps could be underdiagnosed with a, clin- a subsequently clinically significant cancer, but it's still a big problem labeling all these people as cancer. Um, so I think that's the great argument, and I feel the momentum uh, renew is going yeah. towards the pathologists and <laughs> the clinicians actually going to meet in the middle somewhere on this. And I don't feel we'll be sitting here in five years having not moved on. I, I get the feeling that the momentum that Scott and others have built will lead to some sort of resolution of the situation. Um, yeah. uh, I hope so. I mean, because... Because we need to help patients. We need absolutely, to stop. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of harm. To, we, and we see the harm. It's, 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 a, it's a very palpable thing. Um, Scott, my cheery thing. What do you think? What, what is the momentum? Where is the... Are we going to meet up in... Bali or Egypt or wherever like world leaders <laughs> meet well, to come to nice, resolution. Nice. <laughs> We're going to start in San Francisco. We start in San Francisco, yeah, or maybe it'll be on Zoom. We don't have funny, but I, I, what do you think? I mean, you've built a lot of momentum. This is part of it today. We want to. Uh, but we Scott, wanna... the, you, you've also mentioned this. There are a lot of pathologists in favour of the reclassification as well, aren't there? Tell us a little bit about that before we finish up. Yeah, I'm. I'm happy to report that there's four very prominent GU pathologists with, you know, leadership positions in pathologic organizations, GU pathology organizations that have a paper coming out soon arguing on our side of it. And so, you know, things, things evolve over time and people can change their minds and some people never change their mind. And to what Matt mentioned earlier, I think the, the time is right. The momentum is there and, you know, uh, we will continue the conversation and we'll see where it plays out. Eva, what do you think? Can yeah, you, can you see a resolution? How, how, can we, how can we help patients? That's the momentum. You know, you're talking to people who make our living out of doing surgery and stuff like that, but we want to do, we want to not find these patients. And for me as a full-time prostate cancer specialist, it means I want, I'll have less, less work, but I, <laughs> I think it's important to do it because I think we, we have to help these patients, the ones who are being harmed by being called cancer. Yeah, but you will not have less work because anyway, they have Gleason score six. So if you put them in active surveillance, you will have some work too. You don't have to to do surgery anyway. I think if it's one core of Gleason, that's what we're saying. There's a, a line. If that's a one core, you've got Gleason six. And we've, we've biopsied them because of the Pyreds three lesion or the high PSA. Um, but if it doesn't say cancer on the thing, they're not going to be on active surveillance. They're discharged back to the GP with, as usual, a recommendation to keep an eye on this PSA because as the, as our patient gets older, he is more likely to develop prostate cancer. And, you know, but he doesn't have cancer now. And then you drop out of the you know unnecessary biopsies and morbidity and so on because we, we'll have said doesn't meet the threshold whereas if that lesion whatever it's going to be called um, is high volume or there's another clinical we're gonna i'll keep an eye on you myself perhaps we'll repeat your mri in a couple of years or do genomic testing yeah but pirate three shouldn't maybe be that biopsy you know that's another history Uh, i I, I wouldn't I wouldn't advise that, but that's another history. Well, that, that's again a different uh, oh, topic. Gosh. But I, I think we'll get there. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really. I think that it's got such prominence now, Scott. Uh, thanks to your writing and others, and big journals like European Urology Institute, really top pathologists like Eva and colleagues uh, coming to the table. I, I feel there'll be a way forward. Maybe it needs to be around the In fringes. In fact, you know, of n- nowadays when we when we speak to patients who have grade group one disease, especially very low risk prostate cancer, we basically say, you know, there's an argument to not even call this cancer. Yeah, yeah, and and you see their faces kind of just relax a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And and um, Scott, finally, um, any, any tips? You've written very nicely about the way you speak to patients about this diagnosis. So this is not going to be fixed today. So as we go into the the clinic uh, today or this week, and you've got a patient newly diagnosed with uh, relatively low volume, like straightforward. Uh, grade group one prostate cancer. What are your tips for communication strategies with those patients uh, while we wait for a resolution? 
you know, it's amazing how things have evolved over time. Me, you, and Matt are basically the same age. I can tell you, I was the first person in Chicago about 14, 15 years ago that would put people on surveillance. And they were really long discussions where I'd have to talk about every option. It'd go 30, 40 minutes. Not everyone would do it. It's pretty straightforward now. I mean, 95% of people that have Gleason 6, I describe it as, you know, you have a small amount of the wimpiest form of prostate cancer we know of. It's incapable of causing you any symptoms or problems. I recommend surveillance. Here's surveillance. Here's the wonderful long-term data. I'll see you back in six months. Wimpy. Wimpy cancer. Would that fit in some sort of classification, uh, Eva? We said cancer, (laughs) but a bit wimpy. That might be the solution. I love it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's for me. It's really cancer. I'm, I'm, and, uh, I will not change my mind immediately. I hear you. I hear you. Well, look, that's that's fantastic. I'm still on the cancer side. I hear you. And uh, Matt, any any closing comments from you, Matt? No, I would I would just say that we really are trying to keep this conversation going. And uh, Scott and I have been working actively together with Adam Kaibel and Ali Berlin as registered oncologists to try to get a, a true multidisciplinary symposium together, parallel with the GUASCO meeting uh, next year. Fantastic. We're going to hold that at UCSF, close to where the meeting is going to be. And, and this will be a truly an interdisciplinary panel with voices on both sides of this argument. So hopefully we can we'll be able to drive some further progress and start getting us toward a consensus. Fantastic. So I really, I do think the momentum is here this time around, which is actually pretty exciting. Terrific. And I think you've kindly invited me to that. I'm definitely coming along. I'm really enthused now. There it is. Our latest podcast on wimpy cancer. Yeah, I love it. Um, <laughs> Eva, Scott, Matt, thank you so much uh, for joining us. It's been a great pleasure as ever. I've learned yeah. a lot from this and uh, we'll Let's try see. and uh, keep the momentum up. I think it's a really important discussion to have and uh, we look forward to it. Take care. Thank you. It was a pleasure.